the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to be back live and in studio. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing and engineering today's program. Daryl Dash will be my guest. He's a pastor and the author of the book titled How to Grow, Applying the Gospel to All of Your Life. And it's a book that helps us to identify where we are in the continuum of growth and maturity and how we can continue to move forward. So we'll uh, look forward to talking with uh, Pastor Daryl Dash uh, later in the five o'clock hour. Taking a look at some of the developing news stories of the day, Virginia and North and South Carolina are under states of emergency after Hurricane Florence strengthened and weather forecasters predict it could become a major storm that batters the southeast U.S. later this week. It was upgraded to a Category 4 earlier in the day. Uh, President uh, Trump's administration officials urged the anonymous purported senior White House official behind last week's anti-Trump New York Times op-ed to resign and indicated an investigation may be needed. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad reportedly has approved a gas attack in the Idlib province, the country's last rebel stronghold, despite a warning by the president last week. And CBS chief executive Les Moonves uh, stepped down on Sunday with new allegations of sexual misconduct. A Dallas police officer who shot and killed a black man in his own apartment after she mistook him for an intruder in her home has been charged with manslaughter. Well, bracing for um, Hurricane Florence, uh, it's regained strength as weather officials predict it will uh, turn into a major storm as it aims for a possible hit in the southeastern U.S. later this week. According to the National Hurricane Center, Florence is forecast to become a major hurricane and did today, upgrading it to a Category 4. It's expected to grow larger and move faster over the next few days. On Sunday, the storm crossed the 74-mile-per-hour threshold for tropical storms to hurricane, and by evening, its winds had reached 85 Forecasters warn that it could be a fearsome Category 4. It now is um, at uh, its location somewhere off the coast of the United States with winds of 130 miles per hour and more by Tuesday. The Hurricane Center said it's too early to know what path the storm will take, but that could hit the uh, it could rather hit the Carolinas by Thursday. Forecasters urged residents from South Carolina to the Mid-Atlantic to get ready. The governors of North and South Carolina, along with Virginia, have declared states of emergency in preparation for that storm. And of course, that gives Gives them access to uh, resources to help them weather the storm uh, once it hits and following. President Trump's top officials on Sunday said the anonymous senior White House aide who allegedly wrote the infamous New York Times op-ed last week should leave the administration and that an investigation could be needed. That is, if, in fact, this is an anonymous senior White House aide. We don't actually know. If they are... <clears throat> 
If they are that senior administration official, they're violating an oath not to the president, but to the Constitution. That's a quote from Vice President Mike Pence, who spoke on Fox News Sunday with anchor Chris Wallace. Look, it's un-American, and I think that's why you've seen Republicans and Democrats condemn this, end quote. Well, President Trump, uh, the vice president said, was concerned about the national security implications of the op-ed to have someone who literally celebrates coming in every day to frustrate the agenda that the president and I are elected to advance. It really is an assault on our democracy, he said. Well, the vice president added that he would be willing to take a lie detector test to prove he was not behind the op-ed. Counselor to President uh, to the president, Kellyanne Conway, told CNN that there uh, can be an investigation if there is criminal activity. President Trump, Conway indicated, is concerned that anonymous op-ed writer could leak information if he or she is trying to undermine the agenda. We also don't know what this uh, person has said to try to get that uh, op-ed in the New York Times or what he or uh, she said to other people. So to the president's point uh, that there could be a national security risk at hand, he doesn't want this person in a meeting where he's discussing China, Russia, North Korea. Also in that uh, anonymous piece, there was a suggestion that documents were removed from the president's desk in order to prevent him from signing or having access to certain information. Again, concern expressed by the administration. And President Bashar al-Assad has approved a gas attack in uh, the Idlib province, which is the country's last rebel stronghold, report on Sunday said. Reports of Assad's approval comes about a week after President Trump warned the strongman and his allies not to recklessly attack the province. The president called any gas attack a potential grave humanitarian mistake. UN officials believe an offensive on Idlib would trigger a wave of displacement that could uproot an estimated 800,000 people and discourage refugees from returning home. The U.S. and France have warned an Idlib offensive would trigger a humanitarian crisis. Uh, The Wall Street Journal reported that the international pressure did little to sway Assad, who benefits from support from both Russia and Iran. And CBS chief executive Les Moonves has resigned after at least 12 women have come forward to accuse him of sexual misconduct in a pair of New Yorker articles authored by Pulitzer Prize winner Ronan Farrow. In a statement released on Sunday evening, CBS said that Moonves would depart his position as chairman, president and CEO effective immediately. COO Joseph Ianalio uh, was announced as president and acting CEO Why the uh, board conducts a search for a permanent successor. The network also announced that it and Moonves would donate $20 million to organizations that support um, the Me Too movement and equality for women in the workplace. The $20 million would come out of an uh, any compensation Moonves is due to receive following the conclusion of an ongoing investigation into the allegations against him. Moonves is expected to depart with a generous exit package valued perhaps as uh, much as $100 million, according to reports. His future at CBS came into question in July when Farrow published an expose in The New Yorker detailing allegations from six women. Then on Sunday, The New Yorker published claims against Moonves by six additional women. And a white uh, Dallas police officer who shot and killed a black man who was in his own apartment after she allegedly mistook it for her apartment has been arrested and charged with manslaughter, according to authorities. Officer Amber Geiger, uh, 30, was uh, booked into the Kaufman County Jail Sunday afternoon or rather evening after Texas Rangers arrested her in connection with the shooting of 26-year-old Botham Jean. 
Uh, she was uh, later released after posting $300,000 bond. Investigators say that Geyer, a four-year veteran of the Dallas Police Department, shot Jean at about 10 p.m. Thursday when she returned to what she thought was her apartment building in the Southside Flats following her shift. She reported the shooting to dispatchers, and she told officers who responded that she had mistaken his apartment for her own. Members of Jean's family questioned Geyer's explanation for the shooting and claimed that the fact that she had remained free days after the shooting showed she was receiving favorable treatment. And on this day in 1993, The X-Files premiered on Fox Television. On this day in 1991, the Senate Judiciary Committee opened hearings on the nomination of Clarence Thomas to the U.S. Supreme Court. And on this day in 1963, 20 black students entered the Alabama public schools following a standoff between federal authorities and Governor George Wallace. The rest we know, of course, as history. 16 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show live and in studio. By the way, later in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with uh, Pastor Daryl Dash. He is the author of How to Grow, Applying the Gospel to All of Your Life. It's a very practical book that helps us trace our um, our progress in our, our walk of faith so that we are moving toward maturity. Uh, along that continuum, where where am I and what do I need to work on in order to continue experiencing that transformation and growth? That's the kind of book that uh, we're talking about, and he'll be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, the Trump administration is reportedly, um, well, let's not not start there. Wages increased in August at their fastest year-on-year pace since the Great Recession. The U.S. Jobs Report, which was released on Friday, showed wage growth has been sluggish for most of the the ongoing economic recovery. The report also showed that employers added more non-farm payrolls than had been forecast, while the unemployment rate remained at an 18-year low of 3.9%. U.S. employers added more jobs than forecast in August, and wages increased at their fastest pace since the Great Recession, a government report showed on Friday. That's about 10 years, by the way. The jobs report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics showed that non-farm payrolls increased by 201,000 on net, while the unemployment rate was unchanged at 3.9%. Economists had forecast the 190,000 net jobs were added and that the unemployment rate fell 3.8%, according to estimates compiled by Bloomberg. Wage growth, which has been a major laggard of the ongoing economic recovery, was more impressive than forecast. Average hourly earnings increased by 0.4% month by month. And at 2.9% year-on-year growth, wages uh, increased at their fastest pace since June of 2009. Uh, Several other reports show that many employers are running out of skilled workers to hire, with job openings exceeding the number of people seeking work, and with initial jobless claims at their lowest level since 1969, the labor market is still largely in good shape. Jobs are plentiful today. That's not the problem. James uh, Baird, the chief investment officer for Plant Moran Financial Advisors, uh, said in a note, increasingly the challenge is one of employers trying to find workers, particularly those with a skill set to fit their needs. Well, August was the 95th consecutive month in which American employers hired more people than were fired, and there's never been a longer streak. Even a measure of unemployment that captures discouraged workers and those who work part-time but would rather work full-time fell to a 17-year low. Well, the biggest job gains in August came from the healthcare and professional and business services sector. Employers in the apparel, motion picture, and telecom sector lost more people than they hired. Manufacturing employment fell for the first time in a 
year. The BLS bumped down its initial estimates of job gains in June and July by a combined 60,000 jobs, though both remained in line with the average over the past year. But August's gains could be revised higher. This has happened in 14 of the last 17 years, according to Rick Ryder, who manages $1.9 trillion as BlackRock's chief investment officer of global fixed income. Though slightly tongue-in-cheek, we think today's employment report serves as a capstone to one of the greatest labor market recovery periods of all time, with the economy creating new jobs in an impressive manner and wage rates finally rising nicely, he said. Also in a note, the jobs report is likely to bolster the Federal Reserve's decision to raise interest rates, as it is widely expected to do when it holds a policy meeting later this month. In particular, the Fed may view the increase in wages as a sign inflation is picking up. Well, there are lots of uh, books out there. There's Fearless. There's um, uh, uh, Amorosa's book. Lots of books that are purportedly exposés. Well, former independent counsel Ken Starr is writing his new memoir that he considered but ultimately abandoned the idea of perjury charges against then-First Lady Hillary Clinton after her preposterous, and I'm quoting, deposition with investigators uh, in 1995. I was upset over Mrs. Clinton's performance as was e- and rather was even considering bringing the matter before the Washington grand jury for possible indictment on perjury, Starr writes, in Contempt, a memoir of the Clinton investigation which hits bookstore shelves tomorrow. Uh, an advanced copy of the book indicates that to star recounts a January 22, 1995 deposition with both then-President Bill Clinton and then-First Lady Hillary Clinton about the suicide of White House advisor Vince Foster and other issues stemming from the Whitewater land deal investigation. Recalling the president's answers during that interview, Starr writes, Clinton bobbed and weaved but was always pleasant as he avoided answering. The First Lady, though, was a different story. In the space of three hours, she claimed by our account over a hundred times that she did not recall or did not remember, Starr writes. This suggested outright mendacity. To be sure, human memory is notoriously fallible, but her strained performance struck a uh uh, struck us as preposterous, but Starr suggested he eventually decided against pursuing criminal charges against Hillary Clinton because it would have been hard to prove she lied. A spokesman for Hillary Clinton did not immediately return a request for comment, but the next expose set to hit the bookshelves tomorrow, if you're interested. Well, the Trump administration is uh, set to an, uh, and has announced the closing of the Palestine Liberation Organization's office in Washington in a bid to pressure the Palestinian leadership to participate in Middle East peace efforts. According to the Wall Street Journal, National Security Advisor John Bolton uh, made the announcement earlier today. The United States will always stand with our friend and ally Israel, Bolton uh, said, according to the uh, remarks. Uh, the Trump administration will not keep the office open when the Palestinians refuse to start direct and meaningful negotiations with Israel. The administration will not keep the office open, uh, he, the National Security Advisor said. Well, the uh, advisor is also uh, threatening the International Criminal Court in the same prepared remarks, saying the United States will impose sanctions against the organization if it investigates the U.S. and Israel, the journal uh, also reported. If the court comes after us, Israel and other allies, we will not sit quietly. Bolton said, noting that the ICC, the International Criminal Court judges and prosecutors, could be banned from entering the United States as a retaliatory measure. We will sanction their funds in the United States financial system and we will prosecute uh, them in the United States criminal system, he uh, added. We will do the same for any company or state that assists 
in the ICC investigation of Americans. Now, the two are not necessarily linked, although they appear to be in the comments that were given earlier by Mr. Bolton. Joseph um, Mifsud, the mysterious Maltese professor believed to have played a key role in igniting the Russia probe, vanished from public eye after his name began to to surface rather in news stories. Well, now lawyers for the Democratic National Committee say it is possible that he's dead. In a firing, uh, rather a filing in the U.S. Southern District of New York, the DNC said uh, Mr. Mifsud is missing and may be deceased. The lawyer said they will monitor news sources for any indication of his whereabouts and will attempt service uh, uh, on uh, on Mifsud if and when he is found alive. Well, the filing came as the DNC is suing Mifsud and others as part of a lawsuit accusing Trump officials of conspiring with Russia in the 2016 election. The DNC's lawyer didn't elaborate on the filing on why they believe Mif- Mr. Uh, Mifsud may be dead, but a committee spokesman said lawyers haven't been able to locate him, unlike other defendants in that lawsuit. Well, the DNC's counsel has attempted to serve him for months and has not uh, been able to locate or contact him, the DNC spokeswoman Adrian Watson said. In addition, public reports have said he has disappeared and hasn't been seen for months. Could be that he's just in hiding, but we don't know. But there's already been pushback to the DNC's claim. The Daily Caller News Foundation interviewed Stephen Rawl, a close friend of Mifsud, who said really good sources told him that he is alive, that he has another identity, and that he is staying somewhere at a nice place, end quote. Hmm. Well, over uh, drinks in London, Papadopoulos uh, then told uh, Australian diplomat Alexander Downer that his conversation with Mifsud, as the uh, story goes, uh, Downer informed U.S. officials leading the FBI to open its Russian investigation during the 2016 election. While he is far from a household name, investigators say that he uh, was one of the one rather who told then Trump campaign aide George Papadopoulos in April of 2016 that the Russians had dirt that could damage Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. It has long been suggested in court uh, documents filed by the special counsel Robert Mueller's uh, team by Democrats on Capitol Hill and in the media that Mifsud may have uh, been connected to Russian intelligence, though some have noted his ties to Western institutions. Uh, to challenge that narrative. Well, on Friday, Papadopoulos was sentenced to 14 days in prison after pleading guilty to lying to the FBI. According to prosecutors, Papadopoulos's lying prevented the FBI from interviewing Mifsud. Papadopoulos uh, could not be reached for comment, but in court on Friday, he said, my entire life has been turned upside down. I hope to have a second chance to redeem myself. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Daryl Dash. He happens to be a pastor. His book is titled How to Grow, Applying the Gospel to All of Your Life. How do you move toward maturity, transformation? We're going to talk about some practical tools to help you gauge how you're doing and some of the disciplines that can help you get there. Not that we ever... Completely arrive, but I think you get the idea. Well, Facebook, Twitter, and Google have failed to protect us, and they have to do better. Well, that's the assessment of uh, efforts on the part of um, Congress to deal with what they see, they perceive as discrimination and censorship. What are social media giants Facebook, Twitter, and Google doing to address online foreign disinformation campaigns meant to disrupt our November midterm elections and potentially undermine America's democratic system? 
Well, Wednesday's Senate Intelligence Committee hearing on foreign influence operations, the use of social media platforms. Well, there's some um, some quick grades on how that went. First, Google gets an F. Well, this one's pretty simple. Facebook sent uh, Chief Operating Officer Sheryl Sandberg and Twitter was represented by CEO Jack Dorsey. Google and its um, parent alphabet uh, was represented by an empty chair. Well, senators on both sides of the aisle expressed anger at this dereliction of responsibility. The message was clear. Google is unwilling to take part in an urgent national conversation about defending our our political system from existential threats. Google made the right decision when it recently dropped its longtime corporate motto, don't be evil, as it apparently is no longer willing to live up to the minimum standard of decency. Ouch. And then there's Facebook. It got a C. Facebook uh, did show up, and that counts for something while taking on a tone of concern. It, um, in reply to questions from the committee about fake news, privacy invasions, exploitation of personal information, virtual foreign influence campaigns, Sandberg repeated the uh, same vague and clearly prescripted refrain. Facebook was investing in technology and investing in people. Worse yet, when Sandberg was more forthcoming, Facebook's proposed Solutions appear to be largely self-serving. Notably, the company plans to prioritize its efforts on rooting out inauthentic accounts. Well, but um, anonymity isn't uh, in itself a bad thing. And in many cases, it's an essential component of personal privacy. Rather, the core problem is uh, malign intent and dangerous behavior for Facebook, which has been a A business model Sandberg described as we sell ads and we sell information to advertisers. The more the company knows about us, the more money it makes. Well, Twitter rather did better and uh, deserves a B, according to observers. Um, Throughout the hearing, Dorsey displayed true regret that the company he co-founded missed identifying the rising threat of foreign intervention and disinformation. He admitted that there is no easy fix here and announced that his company was going to take a deep review of basic structural flaws, including the incentivizing of bad behavior. He reaffirmed his commitment to a free flow of information, to a healthy public discourse, to personal privacy and to engagement with law enforcement and national intelligence officials to help uncover and get out in front of law large-scale foreign disinformation efforts before they can do damage. Twitter's core approach going forward, he affirmed, would be uh, to track and respond to bad behavior rather than to become the arbiter of what type of person should be allowed the right to speak. Dorsey's vision of the role of Twitter as a public square, a, um, a seductive mantra he repeated several times during the hearing, seemed to play well with the committee. However, when the defense of healthy public discourse, access to news and information, and a free and fair election for an entire nation is left in the hands of just a few incredibly large private companies that have consistently failed to protect us, we have a problem. Well, these are technocrats, so their uh, solutions will be technical. Their algorithms for adjusting truth versus propaganda and free speech versus fake will always be uh, imperfect using programs created by people with their own biases and blind spots. Steve uh, Shingleford points out that those solutions, whether well-intended, overtly oppressive, or simply flawed, will be designed first to protect the fundamental business interests of those companies. The fact is that Twitter, Facebook, and Google aren't uh, benign public squares. These are for-profit data harvesting factories, and that is where, for now, their fundamental incentives are. So something to consider uh, moving forward as uh, there's an attempt to hold them accountable or at least to monitor their practice. Steve uh, Sillingford is a cybersecurity and privacy expert. He's the founder and CEO of Anonymous 
Labs if you're interested in more information. Well, there were some um, key moments in the social media hearings. Um, Here are six takeaways from those hearings. Uh, Sandberg told senators on Wednesday during the Senate Intelligence Committee hearing that his company is working to eradicate fake news from Facebook, saying, I think we've learned a lot and I think we're going to have to continue to learn because as we learn, our opponents learn and we keep up, Sandberg said, adding that we are working on technology and investments in people, making sure fake news is disseminated less on the platform, transparency and actions in in, uh, taking down bad actors. And we have seen everywhere from Mexico to Brazil to other places around the world, these same techniques deployed differently. And each time we see it, I think we get smarter. I think we see the uh, new threat and we are able to connect the dots and prevent those threats going forward. That was a significant moment. Also defining Twitter's nonpartisan stance, Dorsey in the House hearing uh, before the Energy and Commerce Committee said Twitter does not favor one party affiliation over another. I want to start by making something very clear. We don't consider political viewpoints, perspectives or party affiliation in any of our policies or enforcement decisions, Dorsey said. Period. He said impartiality is the guiding standard of Twitter because users and observers gather from all around the world to see what's happening and to have a conversation about what they see. Now, whether or not they're actually living up to that statement remains to be seen. Another significant moment, monitoring activity and content from harmful countries. Sandberg said that her company has been successful in taking down international accounts that could uh, pose harm. Just two weeks ago, we took down 650 pages and accounts from Iran. Some were tied to state-owned media. Some were pretending to be free press, but they weren't free press. And so it depends how, we, uh, how you define a hoax, but I think we are certainly seeing them misuse information campaigns. Another significant moment had to do with the eliminating fake content and accounts. Facebook, uh, we learned, is uh, working to eliminate all fake accounts and content on its site. That, according to Sandberg, we believe that at any point in time, it it was three to four percent of accounts which are fake. uh, She said in the short run or over the long run, it doesn't uh, benefit us to have anything inauthentic on our platform. Another significant moment, preventing conservative bias. Dorsey said uh, to the House Energy and Commerce Committee on Wednesday afternoon that Twitter is working to correct what led to the alleged shadow banning of some prominent conservatives on Twitter. Uh, Shadow banning refers to situations where an account isn't banned, but Twitter makes it harder to find the account and or the tweets posted by the account. We use signals, usually hundreds of signals, to determine and to decide what to show, what to downrank, or potentially what to filter, Dorsey said. In this particular case, as I mentioned in my opening Uh, She said, and I'm quoting, we were using a signal of the behavior of the people following accounts and we didn't believe upon uh, further consideration and also seeing the impact, which was about 600,000 accounts, pretty broad based, that that was ultimately fair and we decided to correct it. Dorsey said the process continues to evolve, but his company uh, wants to be judged on fairness. We also decided it was not fair to use a signal for filtering in general. Uh, He added, uh, it is important for us to, one, uh, one, to be able to experiment freely with these signals and to have the freedom to be able to inject them and also to remove them because that is the only way we're going to learn. We will make mistakes along the way, and the way we want to be judged is uh, uh, making sure that we recognize those and that we correct them. 
Another significant moment, continuing education for greater social media best practices. Sandberg said Facebook is working to implement practices and programs to better serve and educate users on how the platform works, saying, we've worked on media literacy programs. We've worked on programs and public service announcements around the world that help people determine if this is real news or not and uh, help people be educated, she said. I think one of the most important things we're, uh, we're doing is that once a piece of uh, content has been rated as false by our third-party fact-checkers, if you are about to uh, share it, we warn you, and so you are educated as uh, you are about to take a critical step. Now, there's been some criticism of who those fact-checkers are, uh, which tend to be on one side of the, uh, the ledger and not broadly representing uh, uh, the full spectrum of views. So while that was an answer, it's not necessarily a satisfactory answer to those who are on these platforms. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the forgotten Supreme Court decision and its impact on our politics. Uh, Bill Mears uh, points out that we may have forgotten, but there is um, uh, there is a Supreme Court decision that does have a, a significant impact, reminding us of the importance of those who sit on that high court. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, coming up later in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with author Daryl Dash, who happens to be a pastor as well. The book is titled How to Grow, Applying the Gospel to All of Your Life. We'll find out how to gauge how we're doing in terms of our our growth and our uh, level of maturity. Well, there's uh, the current national debate over immigration policies, racial discrimination, LGBTQ rights, executive power, the anniversary of an important legal and political dispute that has directly shaped that debate will pass quietly, its legacy all but forgotten. In September of 1958, 60 years ago next week, the United States Supreme Court finally earned its hard-fought reputation as a co-equal branch of the federal government in a courtroom drama filled with urgency and uncertainty. For the first time, perhaps, the high court put muscle behind its mandate, asserting and unequivocal terms that its interpretation of the Constitution was the supreme law of the land and ordering immediate state compliance. Thurgood Marshall, the prominent lawyer for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, had uh, had sized up his audience, um, nine older white men who were none too thrilled about his uh, revisiting their landmark precedent that was uh, proving nearly impossible to fully enforce. The crafty civil rights veteran turned the tables on the justices in a civil rights case Debated and decided within hours, which spoke as much about public confidence in government as it did about a hot-button social issue. Well, Marshall was essentially arguing that officials in Little Rock, Arkansas, had to follow a federal court order to desegregate its schools. The 50-year-old's focus was not black students seeking equality, but about society's larger civic responsibilities. Saying education is not the teaching of three R's. Education is teaching of the overall citizenship, to learn, to live together with fellow citizens, and above all, to learn to obey the law, he said, in rarely heard audio of the two-day argument. I'm not worried about the uh, Negro children at this stage. I don't believe they're in this case as much, Marshall went on. I worry about the white children in Little Rock who were told as young people that the way to get your rights is to violate the law and defy the lawful authorities. I'm worried about their future. I don't worry about the Negro kids' future. They've been struggling with democracy long enough. They know about it. The audio was secretly recorded by the uh, court and only made available to the public decades later. His words um, 
uh, were uh, certainly poignant then and now. Just a day after the argument, the high court unanimously ordered Arkansas governor to continue admitting African-American students, known as Negroes back then. No state legislator or executive or judicial officer can war against the Constitution without violating his under, undertaking in support of it, wrote the unanimous bench in Cooper versus Aaron. Compliance with the principles of civil rights, as articulated by the federal court, is indispensable for the protection of the freedoms guaranteed by our fundamental charter for all of us. Our constitutional ideal of equal justice under the law is thus made a living truth. Well, the court's ruling in Cooper versus Aaron came four years after the landmark Brown versus Board of Education decision, which found separate but equal public facilities unconstitutional. It was groundbreaking, but many civil rights activists believe little progress was made in its initial aftermath, a sentiment echoed today. What happened in 1954, asked current Justice Stephen Breyer in a speech this past January, nothing happened. What happened in 1955? Nothing. What happened In 1956, double nothing. Well, the Brown ruling simply declared school segregation policies violated the 14th Amendment, implicitly leaving it to the states and lower courts to sort out the consequence. A follow-up decision a year later mandated school integration with all deliberate speed with federal court oversight to ensure compliance, but not but no timetable. Well, some states needed no federal encouragement, but others, particularly in the South, were deliberately slow to change. And many courts were reluctant to ask uh, rather to uh, force compliance. Little Rock School Board initially created a court-backed integration plan, but the state legislature and the governor, Oval Favis, passed new laws banning such efforts. Local sovereignty was at stake, they insisted. Well, the situation in Arkansas capital, in Arkansas's capital, gained national attention in September of 1957, when the state's National Guard prevented a group of black students from attending the largest high school in the city, the Little Rock Nine, as they came to be known. The crisis escalated after federal courts again ordered the Little Rock Central High School's uh, doors to open to all, and President Dwight Eisenhower sent in Army troops. Despite uh, threats of violence, the black students entered and began taking classes. They were subjected to continuing taunts, to threats, and physical violence. Months later, the school board asked for a delay in implementing the ongoing integration plan, citing chaos, bedlam, and turmoil. The federal district judge agreed to do so, but the federal appeals court reversed that decision. It was then the U.S. Supreme Court intervened in a pair of special argument sessions, ordering immediate integration and reaffirming existing precedent that the rights of minority students could not be sacrificed in lieu of state concerns about order and peace. But the United Justice, Justices rather went further, assisting or rather asserting clear authority to bind states to their decisions, which could not be circumvented with competing legislation. Fabus, the uh, the governor, was furious, closing the capital city's public schools and ordering a special election within days to boost his actions. The Supreme Court shut its eyes to all the facts and, in essence, said integration at any price, he declared, even if it means the destruction of our school system, our education processes, and the risk of disorder and violence that could result in the loss of life, perhaps yours. End quote. Well, the open defiance continued. Token desegregation continued slowly in many parts of the South and Southwest, and the impact is still being felt in many communities today. The citizens of Little Rock called 1958 the lost year in Little Rock, but the Supreme Court's newfound recognition of its own inherent power in its decisions would carry on. Some scholars have since called that bench the living voice of the Constitution. 
From the 1960s onward, the host of state laws on abortion, criminal procedure and civil rights were debated and overturned by the Supreme Court in a series of cases known as uh, single words, Gideon, Miranda, Loving, Roe and Obergfell. But the Cooper versus Aaron decision also created a legal and political backlash, especially among some conservatives. Edwin Meese, a former attorney general under President Ronald Reagan, has been among those who've repeatedly criticized the Supreme Court for what they consider a self-affirming power grab. Constitutional interpretation is not the business of the court only, but also the property Um, The business of all branches of government, Meese has written, the former AG had pinpointed the Cooper decision as the start of an era of imperial judiciary. Obviously, the decision was binding on the parties in the case, but the implication that everyone would have to accept its judgments uncritically, that it was a decision from which there could be no appeal, was astonishing, he writes. Well, Meese also believed that by saying its interpretation of the Constitution was the supreme law of the land, that view was and is at war with the Constitution, at war with the basic principles of democratic government, and at war with the very meaning of the rule of law. Well, supporters of a more limited role of the nine unelected justices have cited Abraham Lincoln's remarks in his 1861 inaugural address in which he said, if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent tribunal. Lincoln had his own problems with the Supreme Court, ignoring its rule in the uh, ruling. The president had no authority to suspend habeas corpus, even in wartime. But he did. The justices did not bother to hold Lincoln accountable for his public defiance. And yet the Supreme Court, confident of its mandate, is a concept the public seems now to accept to a large extent. The justices themselves lack any formal enforcement tool except their own legitimacy contained in the power of the words of their words and their ideas. Breyer cites in the 2000 Bush versus Gore decision that essentially uh, handed the presidency to the Republican. What was remarkable about it uh, is that even though vast numbers of Americans thought it was wrong and even though Breyer himself thought it wrongly decided, people followed it. In other places, there would have been guns and bullets. The fact that no blood was shed after Bush versus Gore is what makes America Great. Well, it also illustrates the challenge of governing a people in a democratic society where the states have rights, where the federal government has authority, and how to balance that all when justice is hanging in the balance. We're going to take a break for news and traffic here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Daryl Dash, author of How to Grow, Applying the Gospel to All of Your Life. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is engineering and producing today's program. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Zero Res. Later this hour, in fact, in our next segment, we're going to talk with Daryl Dash. He is a pastor and the author of How to Grow, Applying the Gospel to All of Your Life. How are you doing on this maturity thing? And where do you stand on that continuum? I mean, we never reach the end where I've arrived. If you think you have, <laughs> then you clearly have not. Uh, but we can uh, determine whether or not we're growing as we ought. So we're going to talk with him about this resource to help us gauge uh, how to grow uh, or whether or not we're growing and then offer some uh, some helps on uh, how to grow, some of the disciplines 
that will uh, will help in that area. Well, as you know, this past week included wall-to-wall coverage of the nomination hearing process before the Senate Judiciary Committee for Judge Brett Kavanaugh. Along the way, we were subjected to daily uh, hysterics from committee members and protesters. Senator Cory Booker had his um, big I am Spartacus moment. Um, Senator Kamala Harris went down a couple of uh, rabbit holes during her time of questioning, which led absolutely nowhere but to the land of, uh, well, it just led to nowhere. Not discussed quite as much, though, as a prolonged line of questioning that was led by Senator Patrick Leahy, which at times sounded as though the senator had uh, taken leave of his senses. Um, He had uh, gone through... um, He has gone through many confirmations hearings, but the questioning involved Kavanaugh's service in the early years of the George W. Bush administration as the White House staff secretary and his knowledge of some stolen emails from Leahy and other Democrats at the time. Leahy droned on and on and wouldn't let it go. So um, uh, then there was the Democrat super PAC that's entered to try to clarify what this was about. The Democratic coalition that didn't exactly break a sweat naming uh, the, uh, the 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 group founded by John Cooper, a former Obama campaign chair in Long Island, New York, and the Democratic majority leader of Suffolk County, New York legislature, along with uh, co-founder Scott Dworkin, a, a podcaster, filed a criminal complaint with the public uh, integrity section of the U.S. Department of Justice against Kavanaugh, the nominee, claiming he committed perjury in his hearing testimony before the Senate committee. Allegedly, an email has been found from 2002 that in, uh, that indicates Kavanaugh had knowledge that he claims he does not have of stolen emails. Um, it uh, kind of turned up on Twitter. Well, the tweeter, as uh, particularly um, excited that the civil complaint, which is going to be filed or it was filed actually earlier today, I believe, will come before Judge Merrick Garland. The flashing red light emoji of nice touch uh, on that uh, that tweet. Garland, you may remember, was Kavanaugh's uh, from Kavanaugh's testimony, is a friend of Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit Court. Uh, denied a hearing himself. The Garland nomination continues to be a sore spot for uh, angry Democrats, especially on the Senate Judiciary Committee, for reasons that I think are um, are legitimate. It's also a reminder um, that the uh, Twitter, she is a woman who uh, came up uh, to former EPA Secretary Scott Pruitt in Washington, D.C. restaurant with her toddler on her hip and read a pre-written statement to Pruitt demanding his resignation as her husband filmed it all. Uh, but hold on. Um, Uh, to the Twitter source, that's who it was, Um, it seems that the Democratic coalition guys aren't really doing what they claim they're doing. They don't have the ability to file a uh, criminal complaint, but they've announced that they're filing a criminal complaint. Uh, Anyway, it's kind of a convoluted story, but there has been an effort, whether or not it's legitimate or can actually happen, the uh, Democrat super PAC has filed a criminal perjury complaint against Kavanaugh, and that uh, that marks a new... um, facet, I suppose, of this whole nominating process. Meanwhile, Senator Kamala Harris uh, and Planned Parenthood have come under fire after accusing the uh, the judge of uh, describing contraceptives as abortion-inducing drugs when he was only summarizing the position of a pro-life group. He was actually quoting others. The flashpoint came on Thursday when uh, Judge Kavanaugh was asked at his Supreme Court confirmation hearing about a case he ruled on that involved priests for life who were challenging Obamacare's contraceptive mandate that the group said violated their religious beliefs. That was a group that was being forced to provide certain kinds of health coverage over their religious objections to their employees. And under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the question was, first, was this a substantial burden on the religious exercise? And it seemed uh, quite clearly that it was, Kavanaugh told lawmakers on the Senate Judiciary Committee. It was a technical matter of 
of uh, filling out a form in that case, he said. In that case, they said filling out the form would make them complicit in the provision of the abortion-inducing drugs they, um, that they were, as a religious matter, objected to. Well, pro-choice and anti-Kavanaugh groups seized on this reference to abortion-inducing drugs. Harris tweeted out the video but cut out the preface that showed Kavanaugh making it clear he was summarizing the argument of priests for life. The video therefore presented the reference as his own. Harris accused Kavanaugh of choosing his words carefully and said this is a dog whistle for going after birth control. He was nominated for the purpose of taking away a woman's constitutionally protected right to make her own health care decisions. The tweet went on to say, make no mistake, this is about punishing women. Well, Kavanaugh chooses his words very carefully, she went on to say. Well, Planned Parenthood, in a press release about uh, also left out the words they said and later acknowledged the error, according to CNN, but only after being pressed. They still suggested that Kavanaugh had used what they thought was suspect language. The argument for the law, the lawyers of Priests for Life was that they objected to all birth control, a spokesperson uh, told the outlet CNN. In Kavanaugh's testimony, his description of their objective objection uh, characterized all types of birth control as abortion-inducing drugs. Well, White House Deputy Spokesman Raj Shah said the video was an obvious act of deception, um, and yet they continue to uh, to press it. So this is uh, sort of the ugly nature of Supreme Court justices um, nominating a process, particularly when there's a bone to pick and a, uh, a frustration over a previous um, failure to give a nominee a hearing. Meanwhile, Sandra Susan Merritt is asking uh, the San Francisco Superior Court to compel California's Attorney General Xavier Becerra and his predecessor, now Senator Kamala Harris, to testify regarding their coordination with Planned Parenthood to bring about the discriminatory prosecution against Merritt. Well, in Merritt's previously filed motion to discuss for uh, rather dismiss uh, for selective prosecution. Liberty Council points out that despite numerous examples of undercover journalism in California, no undercover journalist has ever been charged with illegal undercover recording. To explain the reason for this unprecedented prosecution, Merritt's motion documents an extensive scheme of coordination between Planned Parenthood and Becerra and Harris, the former attorney general who now is a member of the U.S. Senate and serves on the Senate Judiciary Committee. This coordination includes campaign contributions joint legislative lobbying to enact new laws to benefit Planned Parenthood, public pledges by Becerra and Harris to stand with Planned Parenthood, and most troubling, a meeting between Harris and top Planned Parenthood officials that took place only two weeks before Harris's, Harris's investigators decided to seize the videotape evidence gathered by Merritt and uh, Harris uh, and Becerra are re- refusing to testify, right? I should say David Daleiden. Harris and Becerra are refusing to testify to their he- their dealings with Planned Parenthood despite being properly subpoenaed. And that uh, challenge continues. We'll follow that story and um, let you know what happens next. Speaking of next, we're going to talk with Daryl Dash. He is a pastor and also the author of How to Grow, Applying the Gospel to All of Your Life. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, for those of us who are followers of Christ, we're Christians. We want to grow in our faith. We want to experience the kind of transformation we read about in Scripture and we see in the lives of others. But how do we go about it? Well, my next guest is the author of How to Grow. Daryl Dash's book is practical. It's habit-based in its approach to spiritual growth. He unpacks the gospel. He shows how it, appe- it applies, rather, to every area of life. And he helps readers evaluate 
evaluate their current stage of growth so that they can know what steps to take next. Readers of How to Grow learn why habits are important, how to build them, and which ones to focus on first. He also explores the roles that joy and desire play in our spiritual growth journey. Well, How to Grow offers actionable ideas to facilitate growth in all areas of life, and he desires to see effective discipleship in the church that goes deeper than simply showing up and going through the motions of ministry. God created us to grow, and his, he answers the question of how. Well, Daryl Dash is the pastor of Liberty Grace Church in Toronto. He's also co-founder of Gospel for Life and director Advanced Church Planting Institute. He has a Doctor of Ministry degree from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and has over 25 years of ministry experience. He is a family man married to Charlene. They have two adult kids, Christy and Josiah. He joins us today to talk about how to grow, something I think all of us want to do. Pastor Dash, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Now, how to grow. This is a, a, an excellent subject that I think all of us would, would answer in the affirmative. We want to grow. How do we go about it? How is it that we find it so difficult? One would assume that if we are affiliated with the church, this is a part of what the church uh, helps us to do as it is equipping us for the ministry. Why is there a need for a supplemental volume like this? And I would agree there is a need um, for those who are already followers of Christ. You know, we have good intentions, but the reality is a lot of us just aren't growing like we thought we would. We feel stuck. Maybe we feel like we'd be further along than we actually are. I think there's a few reasons for that. One, we don't have a plan. Uh, Maybe we have good intentions, but we don't actually have a plan. I think we also get discouraged. We beat ourselves up when we fail, and then we try to do it alone. So just because life is messy and complicated and growth isn't automatic, uh, we actually need to think about the steps we need to take. You know, it's surprising to me that uh, there hasn't been a practical volume like this written already, and I'm so grateful that uh, you've helped us to gauge where we are in this journey of uh, toward maturity and how to get to the next step. How do you define growth? You know, when we talk about growth, we're not talking just about spiritual growth. And uh, the reason why is because God wants us to grow in every part of our life. So what I mean about it not being spiritual, it's almost like sometimes we think, you know, I'll grow spiritually, but maybe physically and relationally and emotionally I won't grow. The reality is we're not like that. We're not compartmentalized. We really need to grow in all of life. And so I like what Jeff Vanderstel says. He says, it's actually our growth is the ongoing process of submitting all of our life to Jesus. And I like that. It's about Jesus growing every part of us emotionally, relationally, mentally, physically, and spiritually. It's about growing in every part of life. Mm. And I love the way you help us to recognize where where am I right now? Where do I need to go moving forward? And what are the next actionable steps uh, that I need to take? Well, tell us about the unlikely source that gave you the inspiration for growth. So my wife is an accountant, and one day she came home and she said, I'm now working for an online nutrition coaching company. And, uh, man, I thought, there's nothing shadier than that. <laughs> I thought, what have, what have you done? Well, it turns out these people, they have PhDs in nutrition science. Um, they've coached professional sports teams. Uh, they've written textbooks on nutrition. And what they did was they were able to take top-notch academic knowledge and translate it into something that anybody could follow. And, uh, you know, I, I began to think, why can't we do that within the church? We have rich theological content. We have really the best knowledge, but somehow there seems to be a gap, and we began to think about, 
you know, how can we take this great theological knowledge and bring it down to a practical level that would really help people grow? Mm-hmm. Now, what are the, the common misunderstandings about spiritual maturity? We all uh, presumably aspire to become mature in our faith. But what are some of the misunderstandings or misconceptions that we might hold? Some people think that growing is about becoming less human. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever had this thought, but you think, man, I would really like to grow spiritually, but I kind of like you know, the way that I am. I like having fun and that kind of thing. So I don't want God to ruin that. And, you know, somehow we have the idea that spiritual growth is about becoming less human. Rather than understanding that spiritual growth is actually becoming who God intended us to be, which is obviously human, sometimes we think that spiritual growth involves becoming more serious. And, you know, I grew up in a church, and I, somehow I got the idea that following God means you can't laugh and you, you've got to become this stern person began to discover the opposite is true. The Bible is full of, you know, verses about joy and teaching about joy. The other thing is I thought spiritual growth involves denying my desires, that somehow I've got to suppress what I really want and follow God instead. And actually, spiritual growth involves God transforming our desires Mm -hmm. so that we actually want what He wants. That's right. And we find that there's greater satisfaction and fulfillment in that without the regret that regret rather that some of our desires bring with them. Absolutely. So, you know, what God does is he he begins to make us want. So as one of my friends says, he fix our wanters. So, <laughs> we actually want what God wants and in other words, we get to the point where you know, we actually, we're not doing it out of duty. We actually love God and it becomes such a joyful, life-giving thing then. Yeah, it's so it's difficult from our vantage point to imagine that life could be better the closer we are to God's plan for us, the closer we are to Him when our heart's desire reflects His heart desire. And yet, by faith, we know that that's in our best interest, but uh, it, it's a challenge for us in the 21st century, as I suppose in any century as followers of, of Jesus. Now, what does it mean, as you write, uh, to be a person who is fully alive? And this may answer, at least in part, what we've just been talking about. Yeah, it really means that what, you know, I think of, I don't know if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, but I think of Gollum in the movie, and uh, Gollum becomes really mesmerized by getting this ring, and it turns him into this ugly creature. Mm -hmm. The opposite is, you know, and that's what sin does for all of us, the opposite is God actually takes us and takes the damage that sin has done, which really corrupts our humanity, and he restores us and the world, actually, to what it should be. So, you know, in the way that sin wrecks everything, it wrecks relationships, it wrecks our desires, God comes along and he cares about our lives. He cares about restoring us to who he always meant us to be. So, yeah, I love that because we become fully alive. We become closer to the people that God originally intended us to be. Yeah, And by the way, I am a fan, and that's such a great picture of the transformation uh, that can go either way when we either reject God's plan for us or we uh, embrace what he uh, intends. Absolutely. And it's such a fascinating picture. I think that Tolkien was actually uh, thinking very theologically when he gave us that image. Yeah, absolutely. Well, share with us about the relationship between holiness and joy. In your comments a few moments ago, you made the point that sometimes we imagine that holiness strips us of, of enjoyment and that life somehow becomes dull. And the more spiritual and mature you are, the more dull you become. Talk a little bit about the relationship between holiness and joy. I used to get really confused because I would read a a catechism question, the the first one that said, what is the chief end of Mm -hmm. men and women? And the answer was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I kind of got the glorify part. The enjoy part confused me. I thought, what does enjoyment have to do with it? 
And then reading scripture began to see over and over again how often the Bible talks about joy. So, you know, Psalm 1611 says that in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. You know, you can't read through scripture without seeing that it talks over and over about joy. In fact, Psalm 4 talks about the joy being better than even when grain and wine abound. So this is heavy-duty joy. This is not just light joy. Well, then I began to think maybe, I don't know if you've heard this, maybe it's joy, which is different from happiness. And I began to study, actually, Randy Alcorn, who wrote a book on Mm -hmm. happiness. And he said, you know what? They're not different. Uh, Biblically speaking, happiness and joy are the same thing. I think you can make a, a really strong, it's actually made by theologians throughout the centuries, that God intends us to be happy, and the happiness is found not by pursuing happiness, but by pursuing Him. The happiest state of a Christian, as Spurgeon said, is the holiest state. So I love this. God wants us to be holy, and holiness is actually the same thing as happiness. We're talking with Daryl Dash. He's the pastor of Liberty Grace Church in Toronto. He's also co-founder of Gospel for Life and director of Advanced Church Planting Institute. In fact, I wonder that he has time to talk with us today with all the hats that he wears. He's also a husband and a father of two adult children. We're talking about his book, How to Grow, Applying the Gospel to All of Your Life. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Pastor Daryl Dash. He is the author of How to Grow, Applying the Gospel to All of Your Life. In fact, Ed Stetzer, who's the Billy Graham Chair of Church Mission and Evangelism at Wheaton College and Executive Director of the Billy Graham Center, writes this of the book, God wants us to grow, but without a plan, growth will remain an aspiration instead of a reality. How to Grow provides a robust, practical, and habit-based plan to help individuals and churches become more intentional in pursuing transformation. If you're interested in growing and helping others grow, then you'll appreciate this book. And I would wholeheartedly concur with that assessment. Well, let's talk about uh, the stages on the path to maturity, something that you write about in the book to help us better recognize, am I moving forward as I ought? Uh, What are the uh, stages on that path to maturity? You know, there's, uh, I list six of them, and they go all the way from the very beginning to the end. So pre-questioning, which is really before somebody becomes uh, Mm -hmm. even interested in Christianity. But then, uh, you know, people do move on to questioning. Many people do. They have questions about Christianity. They want to know what does it mean? Is it actually true? At some point, hopefully, people move to the believing stage, but that's only the beginning. We really need to move to the final three stages, which are growing, mentoring, and maturing. And, you know, it's not, I make it sound like it's so neat and tidy. It's actually a lot messier. Life is a lot messier mm-hmm. than that. But I find it is helpful to kind of know where am I right now? What step do I need to take to move to the next stage? Every stage is beautiful. The problem is when we get stuck at a stage. We were never meant to do that. We were always meant to grow to the next stage. How do we discover what stage we are in? And that's one of the things that you help us uh, to place ourselves on that continuum in order that we can better understand how to move forward in that process of transformation. We've created a, an assessment at gospelforlife.com, so gospel and then F-O-R, life.com, slash stages, and it just takes a few minutes. You can take that there, and it will give you an idea of where you are. You can also read the book, and the chapter will give you a pretty good idea of, you know, this is, I think, where I am, and it's sometimes helpful to get feedback from others to get their feedback on, or, you know, sometimes we don't see ourselves clearly. Other people can tell us where they think that we are. 
Now, what are the three basics that form the, the basis of growth? There's three, as you mentioned, one is knowing. And, you know, I think about when I first met my wife, the first thing that we did before we even had a relationship was I needed to know, you know, who is she? What's her story? You know, what facts about when was she born? Where was she born? So in the same way, we need to know God. We need to know information that he's revealed. And this is where doctrine is important, that we really need to know what God has revealed about himself. But it's not enough. We need to move beyond there. So the second of the three basics is worshiping. And this is where, you know, I think of my wife. I went beyond knowing her to actually beginning to value her. In the same way with God, we go beyond knowing about him to actually begin to worship him, to attribute value to him. And then finally, obeying. And it's like these three really belong together. We need to know God, then we need to worship him, and we need to obey him. We need to do all three things in our life. Now, we need to um, build daily habits in order to, to grow and to shape our spiritual growth. Um, habits can be uh, challenging for us. It's difficult to imagine that we can change what, is, what comes natural to us or familiar to what are habits that are more constructive in our spiritual growth. How do we build daily habits that do, in fact, shape our growth and development spiritually? You know, it's amazing. Some people think they're not habit people. The reality is we live life by habit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we sleep on the same side of the bed. We do the same thing when we get up in the morning. Uh, by and large, we tend to be very habitual people. So I haven't met anybody who's um, not a habit person. The tricky thing is we all need different approaches to build habits. So, you know, some suggestions are start small. Uh, I love the work of uh, one behavioral scientist. He said, don't try to floss all your teeth. Just set a goal of flossing one of your teeth. You know, make it so small that you can't possibly fail. And then I list seven things. I won't go through all of them. But, you know, one of them is focus on progress, not perfection. So when we build habits, don't worry about the failures. We're all going to fail. Keep going. Just pursue progress. And wipe the slate clean. So when you fail, don't beat yourself up. Uh, just get up and get going again. Uh, I want to tell you, you know, this is, I'm unfortunately somebody who really likes habits and they kind of come naturally to me. I really love my wife because my wife isn't one of those people. And so she was good at giving me feedback and saying, everybody's different. We just kind of need to hack ourselves and find out what works for us in building habits. Now, why does growth uh, tend to be an area of frustration and tension for us? You know, I think the the reason is uh, because we just assume it's going to happen automatically. We think because we have the desire, it's going to happen. And we haven't really thought through what steps do I need to take to make it happen And then as a result, we get discouraged. One thing I've noticed is actually people grow, but they don't always see it. So, you know, our son just moved to college. We were looking at pictures of him from the time he was zero to 19. Honestly, we didn't notice much of a difference day by day, but he's grown from being this young child to being now, you know, an adult with a beard and, and as tall as I am almost. Sometimes we miss the growth that's actually happening and we get frustrated So we have to take a step back and celebrate what God is doing. I think another reason we get discouraged or maybe we're frustrated with our growth is we're trying to do it alone. And Mm -hmm. we need others to come alongside and encourage us in our growth. Yeah, yeah. Now, what are the core gospel habits that you write about in the book we're reviewing today? How to Grow, Applying the Gospel to All of Your Life, published by Moody. What are the core gospel habits that will help us in this journey? 
there was a study commissioned, and they really looked at, you know, this. these are behaviors that Christians want. They talked about things like, you know, a life of service and all the, the traits of spiritual maturity, joyful people. And then they did a research project and said, what are the things that actually lead to those results? And what they found uh, is that, you know, first, people who are growing read and listen to the Bible. Some people like reading, some people like listening. It really doesn't matter. Actually, in some ways, listening is a great way to take in the Bible. So we need a daily intake of the Bible. I can't think of anybody that I would consider to be somebody who's grown spiritually who doesn't do this. And then the next thing is we need to pray. Now, here, I want to take all the guilt off. Uh, everybody struggles with prayer. I don't know one person who doesn't struggle with prayer. If if you're one, I'd like to meet you because, I, <laughs> man, I struggle with prayer. But the reality is it doesn't need to be a burden. We just need to spend our, you know, increasingly our lives just giving God our anxieties, talking to Him about our everyday part of life. And then finally, we need to pursue worship and fellowship within a church community. Now, a lot of people are turned off by church. I get it. Church is hard. Community is hard. It's frustrating and inconvenient. And yet the reality is God made us to grow together. We really need other people to grow. And people who grow don't do it alone. They get other people who can mm-hmm. support and encourage them in that process. Now, speaking of support, you write about supporting habits. Uh, there are things that we can do to um, to help support this, this growth as we uh, try to mature in our faith. And what I talk about is please don't move in beyond the three core habits. Master those. But once you get those in place, you know, you're reading, listening to the Bible, you're praying, you're part of a church, there are other things we can do. And so I list six of those. I'll just highlight one uh, or two. One is observing Sabbath. So I know Portland is just like Toronto. People are busy. They feel like they don't have enough time. One of the things we like to tell people is take the pressure off. You weren't meant to go seven Mm. days a week. You were meant to take a break, to refresh yourself, to renew yourself. So one of the key things we actually tell people, very hard to do, especially in our today's life, is to slow down and, uh, you know, to turn the work off, to turn the phone off and take a break. So that's one of them. Actually, a lot of them are fun. Another one would be to uh, serve others. Another one would be to, you know, share the gospel through hospitality, to look after your body and all sorts of things we can do to pursue growth in our lives. How do you personally stay motivated and encouraged on your journey toward maturity? You know, one thing I do, because I fail a lot, is I practice that clean slate policy that I talked about. Uh, The reality is we fail. I want to encourage everyone listening to this, man, if you fail, you are not alone. We fail all the time. I talked about the nutrition company where my wife worked. They talked about this clean slate policy basically saying there's no way that you failed enough that you can you have to write everything off. So just pick up again and start. And I began to think, if they could believe that, why don't we who believe in the grace of Jesus Christ believe that? So, you know, there's no way that you could be a better sinner than Jesus is a Savior. So we just need to keep coming back to God's grace. Uh, years ago, Robert Murray McShane said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. Whenever I get discouraged... I just take the eyes off myself and take 10 looks at Jesus, and then I'm encouraged again. Mm. Now, how do you create realistic expectations for growth? I mean, I want to go from zero to 60, (laughs) you know, two to three seconds. But we need to be realistic in in setting um, expectations. How do we do that? 
one of the keys, I think, is understanding our stage and just taking the next step. So, you know, we have young children at our church. It's great to see them grow. But, you know, if they're two, they shouldn't be trying five-year-old things. So wherever you are, just take the next step. Take mm-hmm. the pressure off yourself. I think another, uh, this is really helpful for people. I found the most mature Christians don't really feel spiritually mature. I think the reason is the closer you get to God, the more you realize how yes. far you have to go. Mm-hmm. So if you feel like, man, I'm not holy, I see so much imperfection in my life, that could actually be a sign that you're growing, that uh, increasingly maturity and humility go together. You know, the, the reality is we never arrive, we struggle. We're not good judges of our own growth. So just keep going. God isn't frustrated with you. He is with you, and he promises to help you grow. Well, this is an excellent book, How to Grow, Applying the Gospel to All of Your Life. If you kind of question, where am I? Am I growing? How can I tell where I should uh, be headed? This is a great resource, and as we mentioned, it's very practical, and it's it's good for those of us who have been in the faith for a very short period of time, and those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long period of time. It's a great, a great check. Pastor Dash, thank you so much for talking with us today. Appreciate it so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Again, Daryl Dash is the pastor of Liberty Grace Church in Toronto. Uh, His book is titled How to Grow, Applying the Gospel to All of Your Life. The book is published by Moody. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to, I don't know, wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, James, we made it through the first show after my week-long vacation. It's always a little bit nerve-wracking. For one thing, you're so behind on all of your emails and stuff that accumulated over the week that you're away that you never feel like you're fully prepared to then talk about some of the stuff that's uh, developing. Uh, and the clock just keeps ticking until it's time for the show to start. So uh, remembering all the buttons and bells and whistles is a bit of a challenge. And also, I just I have a, a sense of regret that uh, James has just been moping around the office for a full week, you know, just one, where is she when she's coming back? I, I miss her. I don't know what to do with myself. That sort of thing, which I'm pretty sure goes on uh, in my absence. want to thank our guest hosts f- who filled in for, uh, for me over the last uh, several days of my week-long vacation. And for those of you who join us late in the program, just have to tell you, it was a wonderful time to be away. I didn't listen to the Kavanaugh hearings. I probably should have. I just turned it off. I didn't uh, follow the story of, um, of Anan- Anonymous. Anonymous. I just let it all go. I mean, I, I knew what was going on, but I didn't press into the details as I would during the course of a regular week. And it was a refreshing break from what uh, occupies most of my days, Monday through Friday here at the station. But it's also really good to get back uh, in the saddle again. So again, want to thank our guest hosts and James for holding things down in my absence over this last uh, week. Uh, Taking a look at what's coming up this week, Gil Mertz will be my guest tomorrow. He's the author of Forgive Your Way to Freedom, Reconcile Your Past and Reclaim Your Future. We're going to talk about what forgiveness is and what it isn't uh, in terms of how it can hold us captive and prevent us from growing and maturing um, in our faith. On Wednesday, we'll talk with uh, Karen Swallow Pryor. The book is titled On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. It's just a great uh, uh, reminder that we can uh, refresh ourselves and move in the right direction by uh, devoting ourselves to uh, to great books. Surprisingly, television 
isn't the only source of uh, of great entertainment and learning. So we're going to talk about on reading well with Karen Swallow Pryor. That's on Wednesday. On Thursday, Kay Wills Wyma will be my guest. Not the boss of us putting overwhelmed in its place in a do all world. Yeah, being busy can be. Uh, overwhelming. It can be distracting. It could prevent us from hearing the Lord's voice. It can prevent us from uh, growing, uh, growing and moving forward. So we'll talk with Kay Wills Wyma about that on Thursday. And then on Friday, we look forward to taking a look at the lighter side of the news. So that will be our lineup for the remainder of this week. Also want to remind you, Michael Jr. will be in a comedic concert this Saturday at uh, um, East Hill Church. Uh, so if you haven't yet purchased your tickets, now's a great time to do that. He's a great comedian. And uh, by the way, in October, you can find the link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, and you'll learn more about this, I'm sure, on uh, Saturday night. But there's also a movie coming out in October, um, which I think you'll find absolutely fascinating as well. So all of that information can be found at kpdq.com. You can also go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. Well, a student at a Green Bay, Wisconsin public college, now we're not talking about middle school, we're not talking about high school, we're talking about college. A student at a Green Bay, Wisconsin public college is suing her school in federal court after campus security told her she couldn't hand out Valentine's Day cards with Bible verses on them, citing school policy. Well, Polly Olson, she's a paralegal student at Northeast Wisconsin Technical College, and she says she's been uh, handing out the religious-themed hearts on campus since 2009 with a message like, Jesus loves you, Romans 5.8, or you are cared for, 1 Peter 5.8, a Valentine's Day tradition her late mother passed on to her as a child. Now, these weren't offensive, discriminatory uh, messages. They didn't marginalize anyone. It just simply said... You are a person of value and you are loved. Apparently that's too offensive. She says, I love my school, but I love freedom and God more. Being in America, everyone has the constitutional right to hand out birthday cards, Christmas cards, invitations, notes, valentines, and whatever else they want that is uh, under protected speech without getting approval. This freedom needs to be recognized not only by NWTC, the college, but across the country. Well, 10 minutes after uh, Olson started handing out her Jesus Loves You Valentines for fellow students, friends, and faculty in the student center on campus, security was called to stop her. Now, we don't know who called security, but they were apparently called. A security officer took Olson to the security office, told her she was not allowed to hand the Valentines out because school policy prohibits it, according to the security incident report filed on the 15th of February. You're probably thinking it's not even February yet. What are we talking about? Let me put this in context in a moment. Anyway, the um, the school officials told Olson she was violating the school's public assembly policy, public assembly policy, which sets a designated space for distribution of literature, picketing or displaying protest signs, otherwise known as a free speech zones. Otherwise, uh, you're not free to express yourself. Well, the first time the school stopped me from handing them out was back in 2014. And after several months, they finally agreed to change policy and educate their staff on students' constitutional rights, she says. But when she was reviewing policy last October, she noticed nothing had changed. I already tried the school's way of doing things and they lied to me, she said. So she wants to assure that students uh, that follow her have the freedom to exercise their constitutional right. The spokesman for the uh, college said that the incident is about record privacy. 
Huh. Well, the Bible theme had nothing to do with being stopped. The uh, spokesperson said, Karen Smits from NWTC, if she wanted to hand out baseball cards, it would be handled the same way. She was stopped because she was going into areas unannounced and uninvited that are restricted to staff members and where students are not permitted to walk freely. She was stopped for distributing a work area or rather disrupting a work area where she did not have business. Well, Olson disagrees. If that's the case, the week before, I shouldn't have had Um, I should have rather had security called on me because I was in the same office and they never said anything, Olson said. Well, her attorney, Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty President and General Counsel Rick Essenberg, says regardless of whether the school is motivated by religious content, the policy is unconstitutional. The problem is that speech was limited to a small zone. A public university cannot put free speech in a box. Well, Adam B. Steinbaugh, director of the Individual Rights Defense Program for the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, says the uh, policy impermissibly restricts students' free speech rights. Well, even assuming the college is correct that she was in an impermissible area, it's not clear where she could go. If she uh, wanted to use the public assembly area, she would have uh, have to get permission from security. And the college bans distribution of literature with offensive content. What's offensive is the notion that security guards or any other government official have the right to grant or deny permission to hand out pamphlets or valentines. Well, Olson said she hands out the hearts because of the love that God has shown is why I show it to others. When I asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior at four years old, I ran and told my mom, I've got Jesus, I've got Jesus, and wanted the world to know about this incredible free gift. She um, added uh, with laughter, and I guess I haven't stopped. Well, Olson said she just wanted the school policy to protect freedom of speech for all students on campus. And so we'll see what uh, what happens next. But in the case of Olson, uh, she is uh, filing suit. She's not looking for damages. She's looking for the policy to change for students who may follow her. We're out of time. I want to thank James Blind for producing and engineering today's program and for standing in the gap while I was gone all of next week. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. Hope you will, too. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.